Good evening and welcome. I'm delighted to have this event this evening celebrating Judge Leslie Southwick's uh, new book. And welcome to the Catholic Information Center, uh, which is not just a bookstore, but a vibrant center of Catholic intellectual and spiritual life in Washington, D.C. I'm Ed Whalen, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which is co-sponsoring uh, this event. In January 2007, President Bush nominated Leslie Southwick to a seat on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in Mississippi. There was zero reason to expect the nomination to arouse any controversy. The ABA unanimously gave Judge Southwick its highest well-qualified rating. Judge Southwick had just completed 11 years of distinguished service as a state appellate judge. He had 20 years of experience in private practice and a decade as an adjunct law professor. And he had also served as a senior Justice Department official in the Bush 41 administration. What's more, just months before, in late 2006, the Senate Judiciary Committee had unanimously approved President Bush's nomination of Judge Southwick to a federal district, district court seat. That nomination didn't get Senate floor action before the year expired. So after Democrats won control of the Senate in, in the November 2006 elections and a hotly contested nomination to the Fifth Circuit seat was withdrawn, President Bush selected Judge Southwick as a consensus nominee. Leading Democrats, including Majority Leader Harry Reid and, and Committee Chairman Patrick Leahy, assured Republicans that Judge Southwick would be confirmed before Memorial Day. Now, every judicial nominee ought to be treated with basic fairness, but Judge Southwick particularly deserved a healthy dose of respect. Among other things, he joined the Army Reserve in 1992 when he was 42 years old. In 2003, when he was 53, he volunteered to transfer into a line combat unit of the Mississippi National Guard, a unit that, in the words of its commander, was widely known as nearly certain to mobilize for overseas duties in the near future. Judge Southwick served on active duty in Iraq for about a year and a half, returning home just in time for his 56th birthday. But just before his confirmation hearing, the left launched a vicious smear attack on the judge. The Human Rights Campaign and People for the American Way sent a joint letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee that charged that two opinions that he, jo that he joined out of some 7,000 in his judicial career were, quote, highly disturbing and, quote, strongly suggest that Southwick may lack commitment to social justice progress, which, of course, is the first goal of a judge anyway. Uh, uh, the first case involved review of an administrative ruling that an ugly racial slur, the N-word, by a public employee did not justify the sanction of termination of her employment. Come on in, Greg. Have a, have a seat here. Judge, Judge, we'll be happy to see you. Uh, Judge Southwick joined an en banc majority decision by the, by the Mississippi Court of Appeals that applying a very deferential standard of review affirmed the administrative ruling. But far from condoning the ugly racial slur, the opinion that the judge joined clearly stated that, this is a quote, the unwarranted use by a state employee of any inflammatory or derogatory term when referring to or directly addressing a coworker is an action that cannot be justified by any argument. The opinion did reject an arbitrary across the board rule that use of the N-word or of any other racial epithet is always so inflammatory or disruptive that it warrants that always warrants the ultimate sanction of loss of employment. But is that really a rule that the left would favor? If popular culture is any indication, such a rule, at least when it involves use of the, the N-word, would likely have a sharply disparate negative impact 
on black employees. The left's letter claimed that the ruling that Southwick joined was unanimously re reversed by the Mississippi Supreme Court. But in fact, the majority ruling of the Mississippi Supreme Court agreed with Judge Southwick's court that termination was not an appropriate remedy. Uh, yet on the basis of this routine administrative law ruling, Judge Southwick was painted as a racist. In the second case, Judge Southwick's court applied binding Mississippi uh, Supreme Court precedent in ruling that it was proper for the lower court to consider a mother's lesbianism in making a child custody determination. His attackers condemned Judge Southwick for joining an opinion that uses the troubling terms homosexual lifestyle and lesbian lifestyle. Somehow they overlooked the fact that President Clinton used the, the same term, homosexual lifestyles, in announcing his don't ask, don't tell policy. And the Lawrence v. Texas opinion, joined, written by Justice Kennedy, joined by uh, four, uh, four other justices, including Justice Ginsburg, also used the term homosexual lifestyle uh, in ad adopting that term. This, the case refers to sexual practices common to a homosexual lifestyle. There wasn't some zero substance to the case against Judge Southwick. But the left's attack on him caused Democrats to renege on their promise to move his nomination quickly. Instead, they threatened to bottle it up in committee forever. And before Judge Southwick knew it, an obscure first-term senator, a fellow by the name of Barack Obama, was leading the charge against his confirmation. So with that background, uh, I invite you to welcome Judge Southwick. Thank you very much, Ed, for that introduction. I've thought at times uh, all the ramifications of writing a book, and it's occurred to me, I probably have told some of you this, one of the uh, complications of writing a book or something like this is I, all of those who never heard about these ob objections to me now know about them, and those who have forgotten have been reminded. <laughs> and that really was not the goal, but I imagine that is the effect of doing this. There are so many people here that I've known uh, th through prior uh, parts of my life's journey. Uh, very honored that you are here. I could identify so many of you, and I will in, at some point on, on some of my presentation, but I thank all of you for coming. It's an enormous honor to me uh, that you would think this would be worth your time in this weather to come on out. Of course, the honor uh, is your arrival. I don't know how you will feel when I finish, but I hope that will be positive as well. I only... Uh, uh, identification of anybody right now are my two family members who are here, my wonderful daughter Catherine and her uh, husband David Brown who are both work here in Washington DC uh, helping straighten out any distortions that are occurring in the political process in Washington in their individual ways. She through art at the art at art history and David through his economic and international affairs knowledge at uh, a place called the Third Way a think tank. So thank you all for being here. This uh, title page here, I hope I got all the spellings right. I want to thank uh, the uh, Catholic Information Center for allowing this to be held. Uh, Ed Whalen, my gratitude to you. I don't even know where you went. Uh, Greg, you sort of threw me off. Okay, there you are. Uh, very thankful for all that you have done going back to 2007 to make uh, my being here as a federal judge possible. <coughs> I'm not sure where I'm pointing to. There we go. Let me uh, get my notes. I really can't see either that or the uh, screen back there. This is what I plan to cover. And I'm going to cover it to some extent uh, from, 
from perceptions of how it affected my understanding of my relationship to other people, my relationship to God, how it affected my spirit. Because this really was a very troubling uh, part of, uh, of uh, my life. I'd never gone through something like this as I did in 2007. Uh, the book says at, at one point uh, that if I'd been given a choice between the easy way to the Fifth Circuit or the hard way, I would have quickly chosen the easy. But in looking back about on it and all that I think I learned and all the benefits that came from it, uh, I think the hard way maybe was the correct way. Among the things besides what's listed up there, uh, I want to mention is Judge Pickering, who I mentioned, I'll talk about a little bit, is a district judge in South Mississippi who was nominated for this position first. He was one of those run over by the, uh, uh, the, the difficult uh, confirmation practices in Washington that sometimes arise. Uh, he's a good Baptist, but I don't think he'd mind my saying this at the Catholic Information Center. He sent me early on, and, and mentioned it again later, and I, I don't remember exactly what time each of these was, a passage from Habakkuk um, in the Old Testament. And it said that even though, I'm not going to get these in the right order probably, even though there is no grain in the field, uh, no fruit on the vine, no cattle in the stalls, even if I am disappointed, I will still believe in God. I will still honor the Spirit. And that's what I try to do. I try to be content in all things, no matter what happened. And we'll see if that happened. I will describe some of that. I came to Washington, so did Kathy, uh, not David, at that time, in uh, 1989. Actually, the family waited a year. I had worked on the Bush campaign, and that's actually a poster from the Mississippi campaign. So that got me up here, and I was at the Justice Department. I had the wonderful opportunity to work with Stuart Gerson, who was here, who was the head of the uh, civil Division for uh, the, uh, the first President Bush's administration. Thanks for coming. Uh, first time I was considered for the Fifth Circuit was then, in 1991 and 1992. The judge that had gotten me to Mississippi, I, I think Ed mentioned I was an alien from Texas who moved to Mississippi, uh, it was for a clerkship. And the judge I clerked for, Fifth Circuit Judge Charles Clark, announced his retirement in July of 91, six months before he was going to retire, thinking that would give plenty of time for the president and the Senate to work out who the successor would be. I am the first confirmed new Fifth Circuit judge in Mississippi. It took 16 years for that seat to be filled, or at least that position to be filled. When I interviewed, it was at the Justice Department then, later it was at the White House under the second President Bush. Those were two of my four interviewers. Uh, Ken Starr, who would have been an excellent Supreme Court Justice, very much on the short list at that time. His deputy at Solicitor General's office, uh, maybe a familiar face, uh, I mentioned in the book, the only questions they were asked to me at that time was a question from John Roberts. He asked me which three people would I like to see on the Supreme Court. I was alert enough to start by saying Ken Starr, even though I realized and I danced around it. I knew I was you know, sort of trying too hard, but I do think it'd be great. But I didn't try hard enough. I did not mention John Roberts, and I didn't <laughs> mention two other, two other people. That's probably why it took 16 years to get on the Fifth Circuit. Uh, instead of a commission for the Fifth Circuit, I got a commission to be an Army JAG, a first lieutenant. And I mention that here because people like Greg Nunziata, who was on the Judiciary Committee at that time and others, have told me that commission was in a way quite important for it working out for me 16 years later, that background in the military. I didn't get in until uh, the age that I was when I came up here to Washington. Because I thought some of these people might be here, I'll also include that swearing-in picture of General Nordotti, who's on the back row there. He's pictured 
not much different 20 plus years ago. Stuart Gerson's in that picture too, as well as others. So I was very honored to start uh, swearing in ceremony with such a luminary, such luminaries there with me. Uh, when President George W. Bush came in, uh, there was a new vacancy on the Fifth Circuit, one from Louisiana that we stole back to Mississippi. Um, Judge Pickering was nominated, uh, never got a vote for the first two years, was re-nominated in 2003, was subject, was one of the ten people filibustered by the Democrats in the Senate, and uh, never did get out of the uh, Senate. Um, Excuse me, I left a slide off. Uh, but he was given a recess appointment by President Bush, so he did actually serve for 11 months uh, on the Fifth Circuit. Now he would step aside, so it was up to the President to name somebody else. I was one of those. Uh, in Mississippi, the senators really have kept a, a tight rein on who the circuit nominees are. The uh, two Republican senators from Mississippi at that time, Trent Lott and Thad Cochran, recommended six people. I was on the list. I went to interview at the White House uh, a little bit after Christmas, I think, maybe it was just before Christmas. I was on active duty at the time, getting ready to go to Iraq. Uh, no decision was made before the uh, brigade headed off to Iraq. So that's where I went, a lovely place in uh, southwestern Iraq. The wind blows, uh, sun shines, but nonetheless, that's uh, where I spent a good quality, of, uh, a good period of time over the next year. That's where I was when I got the news. It was two of my colleagues from Mississippi, fellow Jags, and that was the building where I worked for six months. And I got an email early one morning in March, uh, the result from the White House Counsel's Office uh, about who had been selected. And those are some of the details of the email that I was sent. But the woman who sent it, Dabney Friedrich, was quite positive in what she said and said, don't, don't give up hope. Uh, it was a close decision, all the things you would expect a kind person to say when disappointing news are being delivered. And I laid it on a bit thick. It did hit me kind of hard. I had gotten allowed my optimism to get too great. And I really thought maybe this time, uh, was more or less the third time I was considered, this time would work out. And I told my family uh, uh, that it felt like a strong kick to the stomach, unexpected, knocked all the wind out of me for a while. But, but no permanent damage, and the wind came back, the air came back, and in a few days I was, I wouldn't say back to normal, but uh, it kind of overcame it. But while the air was still out, out of me, I responded to the White House counsel, who very gently had given me this information, that I thanked her, but I also told her, which is a pretty heavy load to lay on somebody, that I feel my dream had died. <laughs> and then a few days later, I was embarrassed by how, how I had done that, and I sent... Uh, uh, the statements there that I had recovered, and I quoted from um, a book called uh, Streams in the Desert, which is a daily contemplation book, printed first, written in 1925, and this, which was not an updated insofar as the language was concerned, but a new printing of it. And in there was a fairly long piece about how dealing with disappointment, I sent her that. But I also, in a way, apologized. I said, I may not have the right relationship with you, which is a professional one, to be sending you something like this, but I didn't want my last words to you to be the death of dreams, uh, and uh, thank you for you and, and all the president and the other people that done. I had no complaint about the decision. Uh, where I was, uh, I don't know if it shows up well enough, Baghdad, east central part, biggest letters, I suppose. Our unit was southwest of there, all the way down to the Saudi uh, border, and that's where I spent uh, a year. 
we had a lot of these ceremonies, 27 total of our troops who were killed over there. This was one of a lieutenant uh, from South Mississippi from the Gulf Coast whose family had already had been blown away by Katrina. And then two months later, he was killed by an IED, Lieutenant Robert uh, Onito Sikorsky. Uh, very moving ceremonies. I'm afraid the Army's gotten entirely too much practice in how to do one of those ceremonies. And uh, it, it does help. And, uh, and uh, that was one of those that I attended. I did not take that picture. I wish I could take credit for it. But I do like the image of saying goodbye to Iraq and heading back to the United States. Then I entered another war zone, the confirmation process. I moved into the next opportunity. Charles Pickering fell by the wayside. Mike Wallace, a superb appellate lawyer from Mississippi, from Jackson, uh, a Supreme Court clerk for Chief Justice, well, for Justice Rehnquist, and uh, arguing from the Supreme Court a few times. Uh, he never got a vote, but uh, he had problems with the ABA. And uh, so he, Charles Pickering for four years, Mike Wallace for about two years. So the pattern was starting to be set, uh, that this was a fairly difficult vacancy to fill. I get a call at the House on January 9, um, Tuesday, I think. Uh, I was an adjunct professor at the time at Mississippi College Law School and had not gone to class yet, probably didn't have any that early in the morning, and have a graduate of Mississippi College School of Law here in the room. But uh, the uh, Fifth Circuit, I got a call. I'd been asked if I wanted to renew my acquaintance with a nomination for the district court or whether I wanted to be moved up to the Fifth Circuit. Nobody had to say what happened to the previous two people who had been nominated for the Fifth Circuit from Mississippi. But that's where I wanted to be. Uh, my mentor on, on, in judiciary, Judge Charles Clark, uh, had, had resigned to go into private practice, but he later used the phrase uh, that he thought the district court was better. He would have liked to have been a, a district judge rather than a isolated Fifth Circuit judge, but he told me he knew the Fifth was in my heart, and, and it really was where my emotions and my motivations were. Uh, after the call from the White House Counsel's Office, uh, Associate White House Counsel, I get a call from Senator Cochran, too, uh, just a delightful message from him. There were five of us nominated on the same day, January 9, and a bunch of district court nominees. Those three people uh, uh, were three of them. There were two others I don't, I don't have pictured yet. But uh, the Senate was undemocratic Democrat control at that stage. It was a 10 to 9 majority in the Judiciary Committee of the Democrats. So nothing would happen there uh, that the Democrats didn't control unless one Democrat would break right ranks. They were being very deliberate, as of course you ought to be with something as important as a circuit court nomination. They were taking one nomination per month. Uh, first person to go was a Ninth Circuit nominee, Randy Smith, uh, from Idaho, top left. Next person, a wonderful fellow from Pittsburgh who I've gotten to know some, Tom Hardiman, Third Circuit. Uh, Smith was February, Hardiman was March. Uh, then Deborah Livingston, a professor at Columbia for the Second Circuit, was the April nominee. And so the question was, who was next? There were only five of us. And they were taking them in order, and though by then, by March, there were some other nominations, so long as they didn't take some later ones, you would think the next one would come off of, of those two. Well, Peter Keisler and I, the great Supreme Court advocate from yesterday, sitting on the front row, we were the last two, D.C. Circuit, the big court, number, second most important court in the country, as we know, Fifth Circuit, fifth most important. I don't know where it fits in. Uh, Peter was nominated for D.C. Circuit, and we compared notes. Uh, I sent him an email saying, you actually were nominated before me back the previous year for the circuit. 
Uh, it would be just fine with me and even appropriate for you to go first. But I also said, I doubt if you remember, it actually would be finer if I went next. <laughs> um, and he used this analogy. Uh, it was like in Toy Story, which I had not seen yet. My kids were too old for me to have seen Toy Story. That Andy has all these toys in his room. Which one does he take next? Which, is, which one is he going to take off the shelf to play? And that's, that's how I felt, or that's how Peter maybe felt after, feel after he gave me that analogy. So there we are, all the toys. <laughs> I know which one Peter is, but I don't know. I'm not going to identify myself in that. So there's Andy making his choice. And we all know who our Andy, the Andy in our lives, was. And that's, I don't really want to laugh. It's the only picture I could find online with a hat for a bad lay here. So Leahy was making his choice. And Trent Lott called me at the house uh, late one April uh, evening, not that late, but uh, after work. And he said there had been the agreement that Ed Whalen had referred to earlier, that all the things were in alignment, uh, leaders of both parties as well as the leaders within the Judiciary Committee that I was next. Uh, and he said I'd be confirmed by Memorial Day. I have that in quotes because it's a phrase I use fairly often around my wife over the next several weeks. I would just say it apropos of nothing. I would just say <laughs> Memorial Day. She knew what I meant. Well, by the time of my hearing, these, these disagreements with my record had come up that I'd referred to, and I, I thank you for going through those. I really don't want to talk about those two cases. I saw an awful lot of senators back in 07. They all wanted to hear about those cases, and I got awful tired of talking about those cases. After my hearing, which was fairly rough, uh, I mean, nobody shot at me, but uh, in a literal sense, that was in the local paper. I think most of you can probably read the uh, caption better than I can from this angle. But uh, another warm reception for a Mississippi nominee to the Fifth Circuit. A few days later, the New York Times found me unacceptable. Uh, the Houston Chronicle, of all things, because it's in the Fifth Circuit, had similar commentary in the the Chronicle is actually worse from my personal perspective uh, than the New York Times because my mother-in-law lives in Houston and she thought she knew me or and I don't really know what her opinion was, but she read how awful I really was in the Houston Chronicle. And it was, us anyway, I won't get into some of the terminology. Uh, so the summer goes and it's not going very well. Hearing was in May. I, I'm not getting a vote, though I'm scheduled for several business meetings and never get a vote. Um, and at some stage, mid-July, Harry Reid tells the two Republican senators from Mississippi that Southwick's not going to get out of committee, that his nomination is dead. Ed Whalen, don't you to forget who he is, uh, sitting here in the front introduced me, wrote on National Review Online, blogged, I guess is the word, some delightful commentary that really explained these cases better than I had been able to explain them myself as to why they really were not badges of dishonor, that they were doing that that hard work of, uh, which is very hard to explain to a U.S. Senator who's not a lawyer, maybe even some of them, about standards of review, burdens of proof, uh, what appellate courts do versus what the lower tribunals do. And Ed did a terrific job of explaining all of that. Uh, and I wrote him, in the middle you'll see at some part on his commentary, he said something I think is very, not significant, but, but very true about these nominees. Most of us are not well known. I mean, Peter, different example, but most of us from the hinterlands, or as Tom Hardiman, I mentioned him from Pittsburgh, from flyover country, nobody knows who we are, and somebody even as tuned as Ed Whalen is to what's going on, uh, may not know squat about the nominee, as that said in one of his blogs, but they become important. They become relevant as human beings, as, as having a background that's important. 
And so that's why I was particularly honored, not because he said didn't know squat about me, but I'm particularly honored that somebody like Ed would take an interest in my cause, even though we had no prior connection. Uh, and then I said at some stage, I think before I was confirmed to Ed, and it was after I confirmed, uh, that even though my cause does not deserve this analogy, I saw him as my Publius, the uh, writer of the three writers uh, of uh, commentary defending the Constitution back in 1787 and 88 because he did explain my cause well enough to convince, I'm sure, many people who otherwise would not have been convinced. Uh, my wife was at home to hear this newscast. I was teaching at the law school, this commentary every night, maybe not every night, but I think it was during the week. Those three commentators, I was the segment, uh, the one between commercial segment, and they spoke very supportively of me, said I was being treated very unfairly. The segment closed with Britt Hume asking, and do you think he's gonna make it? And all three of them said, no way, he's not going to make it through. My wife did not tell me that. <laughs> she decided to keep that to herself. We had enough to worry about without that. How I prevailed. Arlen Spector, I certainly did not know at all. Uh, Greg Nunciata uh, worked with him, and Greg was with him. And when we were at the, in the Capitol in a, in a, in a uh, secretarial office for the vice president, I think is what it was, he sat down with some other aides, uh, uh, Senator Spector. He asked Greg to show him these two troubling cases. He pointed the important language out that was so disqualifying. And as, as I say in the book, five of the best words, I hope I counted that right, uh, that I heard during the whole experience of Senator Spector saying, is that all there is? And he put it with that inflection. And, and to me, that's the right reaction. There just wasn't much to these objections, but uh, obviously much was being made of them. I made the rounds. I saw 20 Democrat senators in their offices. Uh, I was loitering in the hall so much up there. I saw two other senators, uh, Democrat senators, just in the hallway, and we had some conversations there. Uh, none of those I met by loitering voted for me, but a lot of those, uh, of the 20 did. And I also met 10 GOP senators in their offices or elsewhere, which ended up being important, like Senator Specter. Senator Specter is one of the perceived most liberal members of, of the Republican caucus. Would that be a fair statement? Uh, the late uh, uh, lamented uh, Senator Specter, to have him on my side did a lot in, in overcoming, I think, some of the objections of people who are, were significantly looking at my credentials. Uh, this is not the person I would have identified early on as the one who would pull me out of the fire. Uh, former mayor of San Francisco, senator from California, and hers was the roughest, most difficult meeting. I mean, she wasn't rude or anything, but she had some tough questions. And I think one of the reasons is she was looking at it more seriously. I've not said her name yet. Anybody who can't see from the back, Diane Feinstein, I think is her name. Uh, and she had some tough questions. She asked about those cases, asked about some other things. She was unhappy with, with uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito, who had recently been confirmed. And she said she wasn't trusting what any judicial nominee was telling her. And there I was sitting as a judicial nominee trying to tell her something. So it <laughs> was sort of an uphill battle. Uh, and she was only the second of the Democrats that I had met in their offices. So I came away from there. I, mean, I talk about it as, it as being rough, but she's a very decent woman. And we had basically a very friendly and positive conversation. But when you got to the, to the crux of it, uh, her problems with, uh, with judicial nominees, it did not look particularly good. Harold Kim, there on the front row, was with, was with me as we walked away down the hall of whatever office building that was. They all look alike to me after wandering the halls. I think we both agreed she wasn't voting for me, but uh, 
but I, I had a fairly positive reaction to her herself. This was a wonderfully uplifting article that appeared in three different publications. Was the Atlantic Publishing at that time? Three different publications. Uh, the author of it sat on the third row there, Stuart, Stuart Taylor. And I just saw, uh, I felt the roller coaster was all, was supposed to go up eventually, but it was going down for months. And I think, in a way, this article is, is what made me feel maybe there was light. I don't know if you have light at the end of a roller coaster, but anyway, that there was a positive direction that this could take. And among his observations, which may not have been proven particularly uh, foresighted, as he said, how can these Democrat senators running for president in good faith oppose filibusters if they were elected, if they're going to be uh, pursuing filibusters now? Well, that part of the article may not have been proven true, but I also don't know if what he was saying about me is exactly correct, but I sure liked it, and um, I appreciate it very much. And I think it was mentioned by quite a few people in floor debates and blogs and elsewhere, so I think it was an important contribution. I emailed him there, and I thought his credibility might be helped by having no relationship with me. But I just, as I think I put it uh, there, when somebody is drowning, anybody who throws anybody else who throws a life preserver at them is going to be a great friend for a while. And I did feel as if I had been drowning, uh, and he and he really did uh, give me a boost. Um, the Judiciary Committee vote on August second. It was scheduled at the last minute. I was flying up to meet Senator Andrew of Louisiana, who had wanted a meeting, and I would go immediately whenever somebody would call. Um, and uh, in the air is when, when I was in the air, is when Senator Leahy scheduled my vote in the Judiciary Committee. He had gotten mad at too many criticisms from the Republicans that he wasn't scheduling a vote. And I must say, though Senator Leahy was certainly not a supporter. Uh, he had agreed with Senators Cochran and Lott not to schedule a vote until they said go. And they had not yet said go because they hadn't found anybody who would vote for me yet in the Judiciary Committee. Wait, wait. But um, like he said that uh, I'm tired of getting beaten up and uh, we're going to schedule you a vote for the next day, as it turns out. Uh, I was flying up on a Wednesday, I think, and the vote was being scheduled for the next day. Uh, I had my meeting with Landrew, and then later in the day I get called to go over to uh, the Senate office building to talk to Senator Feinstein. I thought I was going to meet her. It turns out I get over there, and it's a phone call, and she wants me to write a letter to her that day, that night. It was about 5 o'clock by then, to explain my feelings about the racial slur case. That was the one that bothered her the most. Um, so all, uh, Harold, again, was with me. He was my handler. He wouldn't always be honest with me because I couldn't keep going. He was always honest with me, probably. But uh, he was always extraordinarily helpful to me. So there's – now, which one is that, Dirksen? We were in Dirksen at the secret vice presidential office in Dirksen. That may still be that. I don't know. I won't tell you where it is. <laughs> we went down to the basement, got on one of those, what do we call them here, trains or subways or something, went over to the Capitol because that was the closest place to find a computer to work on this letter. Very ornate Senate reception. Uh, that's not where I worked. I walked through that and off to the right. That's 20 feet off the Senate floor. Just to the right, to the left is the Senate floor. Just to the right is this secretarial office. And that's where we went. And for four hours, I worked on this letter. Um, worked on it there. Hill gave me some comments. It ended up having nothing to do with uh, standards of review or burdens of proof. It was all about my feelings on the racial slur. It was a feelings letter because I, that's what Mrs. decided she probably wanted. It had to go to the White House Counsel and the Justice Department. My book details some problems that arose there. But we did finally end up with a letter. And we faxed it, I guess. Uh, I sure did. But uh, somebody faxed it. Did we ever fax it? Uh, that night. 
But Senator Feinstein wouldn't say if it sufficed. And so the next day is a really rough business meeting where Carl Rove was supposed to appear to talk about um, subpoenas. I can't remember what he was supposed to talk about, something he didn't want to talk about. So he didn't come. Some other White House deputy came over. They're all in a foul mood, best I could tell. They took a break for lunch and came back at 2.15 or so. And that's what a business, most of you probably would know, that's what a business meeting looks like. That's not mine as far as I know. But rather than sitting up on the bench uh, to interrogate the prisoner, uh, they have, uh, uh, they're down on the floor where the witnesses would otherwise be. And they go in seniority, though the chairman doesn't speak. Uh, but they came down in seniority. I think all the Democrats first. And so all the proper statements were made by the first Democrats. And finally got to Feinstein, who wasn't that senior, uh, maybe fourth or so among the Democrats. And her opening line was something to the word, to the effect of, I don't see it the same way the rest of you do. Great words. I said those other words were the five best. I don't know. Those are in there pretty high, too. And she goes through a very nice uh, discussion that uh, I've watched a few other times on tape that uh, said she would vote for me. That's the only one I got. Uh, I went back to a room that um, was made available for me at the Justice Department and emailed Kathy. I don't know if I sent David something and our son as well. And if I got to email my wife, because I was going to call her, I think. It's the only thing I had in my mind. I just I was going to call her. That's why I didn't email her. That she's going to vote for me. I said that Senator Feinstein says she will. And just to make sure that nobody missed it, I didn't put in all caps, will vote for me. I hope there will be somebody else, but there was nobody else. Um, so I got a lot of congratulations. The governor of Mississippi called me, of all things, Haley Barber, congratulate me. Then I got a call from my wife about 30 minutes later and saying, uh, you didn't tell me. <laughs> but I got a call from a friend or a mutual friend called her and said congratulations. And my wife said, for what? And uh, she was told that I made it. Washington Post, a few days later, I says I was qualified to serve. As I say in the book, I could have written a better editorial, but it was still a pretty good editorial. Um, to make up for a week later, uh, one of my early opponents, Nan Aaron, I guess that's how you say her name, uh, the title of hers was An Unjust Judge, which I think captures it on what she said. But it did seem as if this roller coaster, or whatever it was, was finally going in the right direction. And the question was, and it was the commentary at the time, of whether there would be a filibuster. I clearly would have a majority, it looked like, at that time. But could I get the 60 votes to stop a filibuster? Press conferences were held. I wanted that one up there because it has Ed Whalen in it, uh, the tallest person in the picture. And it also shows some of the politics of this. Uh, my military service, I think, was probably considered to be an unfair uh, statement by uh, opponents, but uh, Republicans used it a lot. Uh, the Washington Post editorial and that other stand, that's all from the same press conference uh, by the same group of uh, supporters that were there. Uh, Senators uh, Hatch and uh, Specter at the lectern, if you can't, if the picture's not clear enough. So this, this was extraordinary to me. I mean, little old lawyer from Mississippi and all these people coming out to support, and I was, I was really touched by how this you know, I read about it, but the idea that I actually would be the beneficiary of it was uh, really extraordinary. And before the vote on the floor of the Senate, all four of the major uh, Republican candidates for presidential nomination, this is late 07, so the 08 nominations, uh, had press releases or other statements. Uh, you may remember the Fred Thompson uh, really, I think, I'm, you may remember differently. What I remember is that Fred Thompson really started the use of blogging as for a presidential candidate, and he had a lot of blogs through the campaign. And he blogged uh, in support of me by mentioning something that he had heard about in some way that's not altogether clear to me. 
I would have it on some resumes occasionally, but if I'm going to give it, if I'm going to be introduced like Ed Rayland, I didn't give it to him. I didn't want him to use this. But it would mention that I had an ancestor that I had discovered, great, uh, great, great grandma, many more greats than that, who was hanged as a witch, one of those who was done in by the uh, insanity in Salem in 1691-92. Well, Fred Thompson somehow heard about that. And so he blogged about Rebecca Nurse, and he, and he opened, so like I should have too, now stay with me, is what he said at the beginning of his blog. You may never, never have heard of Rebecca Nurse, but she was hanged as a witch, and now one of her descendants is being trashed in a similar way. <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. I don't know if it carried any votes, but uh, Grandma made it into the uh, commentary. Uh, this is in honor of Ed Whalen. He says you're not going to have any picture of Dick Durbin up there, are you? So... Uh, those are three, that's the four, October 23, two hours of debate. Next morning, two more hours of debate on me. October 23 was the 20th anniversary of Robert Bork being defeated, defeated uh, in, on the floor of the Senate. So my, uh, start of my debate was 20 years later. Uh, so all three of those and many others spoke against me. 20 senators on the second day, I forget how many spoke the first night uh, about me. Uh, those were supporters, uh, Senator Thad Cochran being a longtime friend and my longest uh, supporter in all this. He was the one who made sure I was recommended each time one of these vacancies came up. And then the actual floor, uh, floor vote, I don't, shouldn't give away the end of the book, but uh, there it is. Uh, cloture by two, uh, two vote margin. And uh, two of those three people I'd seen that morning. Uh, I feel like Rick Perry, can I come up with two uh, without stumbling? Uh, the two, <laughs> at least I don't have three. Uh, but a uh, uh, senator from Delaware and a senator uh, from Colorado, uh, I both had seen that morning, not Joe Biden. Uh, and both of them voted to end the debate, and both of them voted not to confirm me. So I don't know if the meeting gained a vote or lost a vote, but regardless, <laughs> they, they both uh, voted where I really needed them. And I was struck, uh, these happen all the time, I never watched the milling that goes on and the thumbs up and the thumbs down and the nods of heads that are official votes of U.S. senators, but it was something to behold. <clears throat> and it certainly could have been worse. Uh, Priscilla Owen is on the court, but it took her four years to go through the process. It took me nine months or 16 years, depending on how you want to count it. But uh, four years from first nominated, she had to be nominated three times. And I didn't mention Bob Galloway, but all three of those people were strongly... Uh, promoted for the Fifth Circuit vacancy that I finally filled. And these are some of my uh, perspectives on all of this, uh, on, on what it means to go through an experience like this. And again, I can't see it from here. I was the third choice by President Bush. That first person was actually had been nominated by President Clinton if it could have been worked out. But these were two good people nominated ahead of me. And, and to be the runner-up or the third choice even, I think, at least to somebody like me, is really not a problem. I have no difficulty with accepting that he made good decisions the other times. And, and the motivations of opponents. I think we all have to be careful of judging other people's motives. I think a lot of people looked at my record and to the degree they thought was sufficient and found serious problems with it from their point of view. And other people looking at the same record may not have seen that, but for political uh, reasons uh, decided that depending on what party they're in, they had to vote a certain way on that. And this would not be the only situation where that occurs, meaning a judicial nomination. Um, so those who are genuinely concerned about uh, my record, uh, who looked at it in a way that I didn't think would be fair, uh, makes me uh, want to quote something that one of Ed's colleagues at the Ethics and Public Policy Center 
Peter Wayner, I think I pronounced that right, said, and he's written about this a few times, um, and he talks about the effect that certain kinds of mindsets have on all of us. We approach a subject with a particular point of view, and once we settle on it, we are very reluctant to revisit our judgments and the empirical basis for them. Some examples that may come to mind, certain politicians, how you feel about them, presidents, for example, current issues, fracking, uh, global warming. To, to what extent do our intuitions, do our starting opinions affect what evidence we're listening to and, and, and the impact that it has? And he calls this confirmation bias, confirmation that the evidence confirms our biases. The tendency of people to favor information that confirms their beliefs. What complicates matters is something, and I can't quote, I can't name uh, this particular psychologist he's quoting, but that the intuitions we have, the basic beliefs we have, is the elephant. And the rational deliberation that we apply to that is the rider on the, is on, is the, rider on the elephant. So the really big factor in our making decisions, and it can apply to me, and uh, I hope not in my judicial role, but certainly making opinions about other things, uh, can be our basic belief structure and the opinions that we have come, our conclusions we have come to. Uh, and the new evidence we get is just a small rider on the back of the big elephant. So I have no, uh, I have no rancor towards any of the people that uh, I enjoyed this time with meaning I didn't enjoy all of it that much. And when I say that if I was given a hard journey or the easy journey, that it's good for me that I had the hard, uh, I, I quote C.S. Lewis in the book, and I, and I quote it again. We need, advers we need adversity at times to remind us of our need for God. He wants to give us something, but he cannot because our hands are full. Adversity can empty our hands and make us more open to the situations that come up in our life. And one of the things that I was strengthened in was not was my faith, most importantly, but also uh, putting things in order, what's the most important. And I would say family is. I'm glad the family's here. Uh, and I would say, of all the congratulatory messages I got, uh, Kathy's mother gave me the best. She was leaving to go visit her mother in Houston as I returned from Washington. We met at the airport. I'm glad she gave me the keys. Uh, tell me where the car was. But she left a display on the dresser at our house that I took a picture of. <coughs> and it's a picture of my family, most of whom were not alive anymore. My mom and dad, her parents, only one was still living. She, when well before our marriage journey, uh, direction it would go. So all these people, she suggested by the message she put, congratulations from all of us. All of those people are smiling wherever they are at the outcome that came. And the idea that this was a family experience, uh, uh, one enjoyed by all, wherever they may be, was, was very uh, warming and endearing. Thank you, all of you. <clears throat> Anybody have any questions? Yes.
I've thought about that, and, and it's a question that I think is central to a story like this. Does it have any ramifications for others? Does it have any message for others? I would not necessarily suggest setting a goal like the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals very early in your career and expect <laughs> for the next 30 years to be pursuing that. I, I will say my goal was there starting really when I was in the Bush administration, first Bush administration. I, I wasn't in the second one. Uh, and it was a change, of course. I was not particularly interested in being a federal judge, but the opportunity came up. It was, it was related, at least, to the sort of thing I would want to do other than go back to private practice, meaning I didn't particularly want to go back to private practice, and I uh, hope I had some skill set that would be useful in, on the court. But when it didn't work out then, uh, I didn't make that as some sort of, of final say on what was going to occur. I, I had got a related position, I had to run for it, and I will say running for state Court of Appeals was easier than running for the Fifth Circuit. Uh, it uh, had more control over it, and that's one of the things about being a seeking a nomination of other people, the president, uh, for a job like this. It's so much out of your control. Uh, so, so to continue to pursue it, but to have other things that would be satisfying as well. And I made several sort of leaps of faith that probably worried the family at times coming up here and, and to work in the Justice Department, leaving private practice. Uh, wasn't sure where that would go. Uh, running for the sake of appeals, that may not have worked out. And then not running for re-election 12 years later because this judicial vacancy had opened up and I didn't want to be pursuing two judgeships at the same time is entirely too complicated. But the other one may not work out. So I don't know if I have any advice other than if you have a goal, uh, uh, certainly pursue it, continue to reevaluate whether it's, it's, it's possible or not. Of course, in my case, I should have given up a long time ago. Uh, but other than to have goals and to keep after them, but not to be distracted from your everyday life and work uh, would be among the suggestions I would make. I also say, I, I, I was telling uh, Father earlier and some others, that it's an awkwardness that he says I shouldn't have since I'm in Washington, about writing a book about myself and then talking about myself. Uh, it just doesn't seem quite right uh, from, for me. But one thing I do want to say is there's not a lot of justice at times in what works out and what does. And I feel extraordinarily honored to be one of those 10. And there are only 10 in 2007, 2008 who were confirmed to circuit courts. And there are a lot of other people, more than that, 13, I think, who are still waiting. And, and I was by no means the best of the 23 or in the top 10 of the 23. And I think of Peter Keisler, there's a certain unfairness in life that I was confirmed to the Fifth Circuit, and Peter, who had had such an impact up here on the D.C. Circuit, uh, was not. And I don't say that to make him feel awkward, but I do say that's part of the story of who gets confirmed and who doesn't isn't really on merits. It's on, it's on the confluence of political factors. And uh, I, I feel extraordinarily lucky and blessed to be where I am. Was that answering your question? <laughs> I think I divert. I digress. Anyway, other questions? Thank you very much. Oh, David Best. I wonder. I actually have thought about that, but I have not come up with an answer. Uh, I think it has affected how I look at other people, how I look at uh, controversies, particularly dealing with uh, appointments or, or people running for office, when you're looking at choosing somebody, getting back to what I was quoting uh, uh, earlier about confirmation bias, how much am I relying on certain indicators like their background, part of they're from, whether they're from New York or someplace safe, south like the 
like in the South, someplace safe like in the South. So am I subject to the same uh, biases that I feel may have been applied to me? I certainly am. So it's affected my life more than I think it's affected my judging, maybe. Could be I'm not self-aware enough to know how it's affected my judging. Yes. Uh, a searing experience can have all sorts of benefits to it, and that's part, I guess, the uh, message of the book that I'm trying to get across. But I wonder, I mean, I'm not uh, disagreeing, but my starting imp uh, impression is it's, it's one thing to be tested in a way uh, that is fair, uh, that you're dealing with the kind of adversities that you might have to face in coming out with a controversial decision. One great thing about life tenure is you don't have the same worries that you might have as, as I did as a state court of appeals judge. Uh, as how it would affect the next election. But even on a state court, you have to be absolutely convinced that what you're doing is independent of any political ramifications because you really don't need to be doing that job if you let it affect you. Uh, I do think adversity helps. It helps in a variety of ways. The nature of the adversity can impact the amount of the benefit. A lot of people can get bitter about all of it. It helps to win, and that kept me from, getting, from being bitter. I, mean, I think Judge Pickering who lost it's not bitter or Mike Wallace either, but it's it's uh, it's uh, uh, a, it's a struggle. So I, I guess I don't really have much of an answer to that, other than I think you're right that there's an awful lot the judges have to take into account uh, or deal with after a, a controversial decision may be handed down. Uh, one thing you deal with is you don't look too much at the commentary uh, on the blogosphere about controversial cases that you that you may have worked on. But I think it is um, something I will contemplate. I'm not sure what the answer to that is. Thank you very much. <laughs>